<laughs> you're feeling a little bit of the San Francisco nostalgia? Yeah, well, um, having lived there 28 years and having been attracted to San Francisco from my earliest um, teenage years, uh, when it was the kind of the birthplace of beatniks. Yeah, yeah, North Burns Beach. Burns, Getty, North Beach. Yeah, city lights. And, and so I, I went several times for visits before mm-hmm. I wound up living there in 1970. And my original interest in San Francisco was that, was the, the beat world, the, you know, the, <clears throat> the literary scene um, and the music and yeah. the whole bohemian culture. Uh, it was like Greenwich Village, except much much mellower, <laughs> much more pleasant, yeah. less edgy. The drugs were nicer. The drugs were nicer. <laughs> the The buildings were cuter, um, and it was easier to penetrate, easier to get involved with. Yeah, you walk into City Lights bookstore and half an hour later you're talking to Lawrence Ferlinghetti. You know. I had that experience. It, I mean, it was obviously decades later, but I, I still, you know, as as late as. I can't remember what year he died, but it was it was um, probably early early two thousands, and I just you know went into the store yeah, and and there's that that poetry part upstairs. Yeah, I walked yeah. in and Lawrence Ferlinghetti was just hanging yeah. out. Yep. <laughs> um, N- New York never had that same attraction for you. Oh yeah, it did. I probably would have stayed in New York were it not for you know. Robert Crumb, yeah, migrating out to San Francisco in 1967, and in effect, you know, creating the first underground comic, and attracting one by one dozens of other people to to join him. Um, otherwise, I would have stayed. I mean, in 1968, when I did I did my very first comic mm. in New York. For uh, the East Village Other yeah. and Screw Magazine, <laughs> um, there was no. Uh, that was it. <laughs> yeah, a couple of weekly underground papers, but all of a sudden there was this comic book industry going on. This underground comic book industry happening in San Francisco. So it was a no-brainer just to pack up and move to San Francisco. So you were working with Al Goldstein. You were. Working, at working with him or, or against or you him. Were publishing. He actually didn't like my work. No, but, really. But uh, I was in there because of Steve Heller. Yeah. Steve Heller, who later became the art director of the New York Times Book Review, and is now the head of the illustration department in the School of Visual Arts, was the art director of Screw. And I walked into their offices, probably when they were putting out like Screw Number Five, <laughs> and I brought my first scribblings, and. Um, at that time, I was painting and working in a bookstore. I had no intention of becoming a cartoonist. I just did it as, I don't know, just a friend of mine challenged me to do it. Hmm. And I did it. It was published. I remember walking back to Screw's offices to get copies, and I said um, to Steve, how many copies of this thing do you publish every week? He said, 10,000. He said, what? <laughs> 10,000 copies of my comic are going out? I was lucky if ten people saw my paintings. Yeah, and that was it. I just that was to have an audience was such a heady experience. I stopped painting and just started doing comics. Then I started to see Crumb. Then I started to see Kim Deitch, hmm. um, and I realized there was a some sort of movement that um, that I could be part of. And then New York just wasn't the place for that yeah. to keep going because there were just these weeklies and that wasn't enough. Whereas in San Francisco you could just do a 32-page comic of your own work and in those days they published them and sold 20,000 of everything. It was just kind of a... Um, you had a built-in audience of fellow you know, counterculture types. Um... And it was a beautiful place to live. It was cheap, beautiful weather. Um, it's just idyllic. This, um, this this idea that you're formulating right now is it uh, is it memoir? Well, I have, I have um, after my Invisible Ink book. Yeah. Um, after a few months, after I finished it, I began to feel 
kind of itchy. <laughs> like I, <laughs> I really liked doing it. Um, you know, I have to do a, a zippy yeah. seven days a week. I mean, seven strips a week. So I did Invisible Ink all on weekends. Um, but like I say, after it was finished, I felt I missed doing that. I missed that different, something different was being expressed that wasn't happening in Zippy. So I started another book. The other book I started actually isn't this San Francisco idea. It's a biography of Schlitzie the Pinhead, mm. who was the inspiration yeah. for Zippy. From, uh, Freaks. from the movie Freaks. Yeah. That's where most people have seen him. But I've been doing a lot of research and interviews, and I'm basically trying to um, deal with him in this book as a human being, yeah. not, as, not as a sideshow freak, yeah. not as a weirdo, um, but as a person. And I've managed to talk to several people who knew him at the end of his life, and observed him very closely, and were friends. Uh, once I got that, once those interviews happened, I really had the book. So I'm working on that right now. The idea for doing a book about my days in San Francisco just occurred to me about a week ago. <laughs> I'm just walking along, yeah. and suddenly this idea popped in my head. So it's very, it's very unformed at the moment. Yeah. But um, you know, when you go through something very intense, you have to have some distance from sure. it, I think, to understand what it was and to talk about it and write about it and depict it. So I think there's another, a third book in me somewhere. Um, and it would, it would probably be about San Francisco. Have you, you know, it's, it seems like you're having this almost this, this whole new career with these, with these longer form, form books. Um, but are you, do, do you see yourself continuing to do Zippy just as long as you can continue to write? I guess. Um, <laughs> I seem to be able to do both. Yeah. Um, Zippy requires five days a week from me. Hmm. That leaves weekends, of course. It doesn't leave <laughs> much for your life. After, yeah. But um, I don't... I don't I, work every weekend and I managed to produce a 200 page book in a little over two and a half years doing that uh, it didn't burn me out, I didn't fall apart uh, I didn't um, collapse I didn't have to go lie on a beach for six months um, I was perfectly okay yeah. at the end of it so whatever it was worked so I think I'll just keep doing, doing it again um, Zippy I always think if Zippy stops happening for me, it'll be because I get the dreaded phone call mm. from King Features saying, guess what, Bill? <laughs> there are no more newspapers. There are no more newspapers. <laughs> we just realized we've been sending your Zippy strip out to empty P.O. boxes, and, uh, yeah. and no money is coming back. Although Brian Walker, uh, Mort Walker's son, mm. who does uh, High and Lois and yeah. Beetle Bailey, yeah. um, he once said something very smart, I thought. He said, yes, newspapers are dying, but they're doing it in slow motion. Huh. And for, for us, or people in your 60s or whatever, the good, there's a good chance we'll die before they really do. So, good, go ahead, die. Um, just don't die quickly, <laughs> because that wouldn't work for me. But have you seen a, a, a pickup on, online, you know, as... as, as I know you've got a newsletter, and obviously King King publishes publishes these online. It seems like you can oh, almost yeah. have a second life there. I have my audience is a hundred times, a thousand yeah. times bigger than it ever was when um, Zippy was only available in daily newspapers. Um, every daily newspaper that carries Zippy in print also has it online, mm. plus the dozens and dozens of other newspapers that Zippy does not appear in, carry it online. Of course, the problem is, with all, as with all web content, there's not much money there. Sure. <laughs> everything I'm, is I'm free. Familiar. Yeah. Yes, everything has to be free. Free or, you know, free with ads, right? Pop-up yeah. ads. That's how, that's how it works. So, uh, you know, in, in, in print, if King Features were to sell Zippy to a big city daily that still was relatively healthy, 
they might pay $100 a week. Um, online, $5 a week. Token amount. So not a lot of money there yeah. for them or me, but a huge boost in my audience. Even just on Facebook, you know, I have like 8,000 people that read Zippy every day on Facebook. But then hundreds of thousands who read it casually through dozens of other websites that I have nothing to do with, and um, in color, even. <laughs> Zippy's available every day in full color on the web. As, as, you, were, as you were seeing some of your contemporaries, you know, as um, Spiegelman and, and Kim, you mentioned, and, and Robert Crumb were working on these longer pieces, and you were kind of grinding away on the daily strip was there was there a little bit of jealousy in their ability to kind of create these like big substantial maybe non-ethereal works I don't know if jealousy is the <laughs> word um, I, I, I certainly took notice yeah. that I was doing something and they were doing something else <laughs> and that we once were doing something very similar together yeah. and now we weren't anymore but I always thought of my zippy strip as an ongoing big long story hmm. and that the the really the, the way that I preferred for people to read Zippy was not online or in the newspaper, but in the books that I come out with, in order. <laughs> because they are a long narrative in their own way. There's a story going on that comes in and out of different areas. Um, sometimes my strip would go on very in a very linear fashion, even for weeks that had a real story, but I always thought they should be read as if they were one long story, and um, that's how I read them. However, <laughs> I was aware, of course, that the graphic novel form um, certainly had taken hold in a huge way, and I, I always thought, where's my graphic novel? I, <laughs> I didn't um, fret or worry about it, but I would just say to myself once in a while, I see Dan Klaus's latest yeah. effort, loved it. And I think, hmm, do I have that in me somewhere? Mm. Probably. I wonder when it will come out. <laughs> and then it did. It just came out organically. And when I visited my uncle three years ago on a, just a family visit, and the subject of my mother's extramarital affairs came up, and that night, the book came to me. The entire book came hmm. to me in a matter of hours. And um, when it did, I thought, okay, this is what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to wait 40 years, do Zippy every day, <laughs> and then my graphic novel would come to me. You know, people used to ask me, how do you break into daily syndication? Because yeah. it still is a big deal for a lot of people. Sure. King Features still launches about six new strips a year, believe it or not. Yeah. So my only advice was, work in an obscure underground <laughs> uh, uh, medium for 15 years <laughs> and wait for the phone to ring. That's how I got into it. Do your own thing. Do your own thing and hope somebody will notice and they'll call you. I mean, King Features called me in 1986, literally. He just called me. He said, how would you like to take Zippy National? I didn't, um, I didn't seek yeah. that at all. It just... It occurred to a an outgoing vice president at King to um, to, to grab Zippy and and then he quit. <laughs> and I thought I thought that was the end of me, but then Jay Kennedy came along as the editor, and um, so I think I, I owe a lot to Jay Kennedy. I I mean I suspect prior to that it, it wouldn't have even occurred to you that a a strip as strange and idiosyncratic as Zippy would have such an appeal, you know, that, that would live aside, you know, Peanuts mm -hmm. or Garfield or... No, it, <laughs> yeah, it still doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I like it when I see Zippy next to Family Circus, Yeah, because I think of that as the other surreal comic strip. <laughs> um, <laughs> how How is that? Well, it's just, it's, it seems so often its own little yeah. strange world. Um, and when Bill Keen himself was doing it, it was mm -hmm. even stranger. And Bill Keen was a huge Zippy fan. Yeah. And he wasn't kidding. He really, he, we would write letters back and forth to each other, and he would tell me about a strip that he loved that I did. And we jammed, actually, 
<laughs> Sometime in like 1995, we did a series of about 10 strips together. Really? Are those available? It's They're in Zippy Quarterly number something or other. Okay. Yes, they're out I have there. have to find those. Yes. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, um, I produced Zippy as a weekly strip, self-syndicated, for about four years, from 76 to 80, and then from 80 to 85, it was syndicated as a half-page weekly newspaper strip by a rip-off press, one of the underground mm. publishers yeah. in San Francisco. Yeah. And, um, they did the uh, Freak Brothers, I think. They did the Freak yeah. Brothers, Gilbert Shelton. And then um, uh, the San Francisco Examiner, which was the afternoon paper, the Hearst-owned paper mm. in San Francisco in 1986, was basically handed over to Will Hearst III, was about my age, and he called me, he called Crum, and he called Hunter Thompson. <laughs> That's good. And he tried to get all of us to work for him. Yeah. I was the only one that worked out. Yeah. It's a pretty good crowd to be in now. Oh, yeah. It was, <laughs> yeah, it was a fun a couple of parties he threw. Um, Hunter Thompson um, ended one of them with gunshots of through the door. Uh, a very difficult guy to talk to. Um, but Robert really didn't want to do it, but Aileen, his wife, did. So they did. Remember, remember, they did 20 sample strips, gave it to Hearst to look at, and he said, "You know, I didn't tell you guys, but of course I meant this is a daily newspaper. You can't have screwing, cursing, bodily functions, yep. all of the crumb classics." Right. <laughs> you, you you realize you can't. I I didn't. Did I have to tell you you can't do that? In the <laughs> And of course, they, Crumb sabotaged the whole yeah. thing. That was, that was the end of that. But I worked out. I, I, I didn't have any problem um, keeping it, you know, PG rated. That, that wasn't a big concern for me. My concern was that they would editorialize what I was doing, that they would say, okay, Bill, this is a little too weird, or yeah. these references you're making, no one's going to get these references. They're or too the politics. Or, yeah, this is a little bit too, you know, yeah. lefty or whatever. Um, but Will liked my stuff, so there it went for a year. It was printed on page two of the front section of the paper. Hmm. It was prominent. Wow. Uh, much to the um, much to the chagrin and deep hatred of <laughs> Will's uncle, the elder Randolph Hearst, hmm. who actually lived in San Simeon, the Hearst Castle in California. Oh. Xanadu. In Xanadu, yes. Um, and burned with rage every time he saw Zippy. <laughs> so after a year, it was bumped from the second page of the first section to the comic page. Um, and that's where it got noticed by King Features. <laughs> and so that's how it became a nationally syndicated strip. What was, what was happening? You know, and I'm, I'm kind of curious, and you know, I, I tend to think of 85, 86 as being a bit of a, you know, a watershed for comics in general. You know, the mouse was coming out, and then... And you know, Watchmen and Dark Knight and these these bigger books. But um, what was sort of going on in comics and and for you in, in that time period? I mean, obviously a lot of the uh, uh, underground comics has kind of died down a bit by then. Yeah. Well, um, I I don't know if I didn't I didn't do, do this in a calculating way, but. <laughs> Starting in 1976, I started doing Zippy as a weekly. Yeah. And I had a little entrepreneurial streak in me somewhere. I remember finding out there was something called the Alternative Weekly Association. Yeah. All the weekly papers had a... To syndicate. A, a, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I got a list of all these papers, so hundreds of them across the country. And I, the addresses and the name of the editors... I thought, well, right now the Berkeley Barb is printing Zippy once a week, and that's it. What if I could sell the exact same strip to, I don't know, 25 other papers? Yeah. Hmm, 25 times $10, that's 200 <laughs> Do the know, same amount of work. Do the same amount of work. Yeah. Just have to do some, some um, initial sure. outreach and yeah. bookkeeping. And I did, and I, lo and behold, I had about 50 papers. So, you know, I was able to survive through that rocky period where underground comics had 
stopped being what they once were, and the audience for them had kind of disappeared. Um, of course, there were manifestations of it still happening. Crumb was still producing work. Uh, Art Spiegelman was about to do Raw and then did Raw. Um, so it was still viable as a um, form, but the original kind of commercial way it happened, the way any of us could make a living out of it, had pretty much disappeared. Yeah. And the dream that we all had, especially Art and I, when we made Arcade, to graduate from comic book distribution in hmm. head shops and comic book stores uh, to magazine racks next to the National Lampoon. Yeah, Mad Magazine. Mad Ma that never quite happened yeah. either. <laughs> we were a little too weird. Um, so just the very fact that I was able to pay the rent by just doing yeah. this weekly zippy strip um, was kind of... Um, was good, and it also set me um, on the path to what would happen eventually with King Futures, where I would do it daily. Um, and my first few Zippy um, paperbacks, collections of daily strips, were through uh, Penguin and um, E.P. Dutton through major New York publishers, who sent me on book tours, and I was on the Today Show, and <laughs> um, I was seeing that Zippy was a career. There was a career here. I, I, of all I, things, it was very surprising. Yeah, well, I, 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 like, I love the irony of that, that you were too weird to get into magazine racks, but all of a sudden I everything know. worked out in such a way that you're in all the newspapers. What was the Today Show appearance like? Did they know what to make of you? No. <laughs> Bryant Gumble was the guy. <laughs> and so I was ushered onto the set, and there was my um, comic, my, yeah. my paperback. It was called um, Kingpin was my first mm. paperback. It was E.P. Dutton. And the, my editor at E.P. Dutton was there. And um, Brian Gumbel is sitting there quiet. <laughs> not look, I thought I was supposed to say something to him. The, you know, the camera's not rolling yet. The camera rolls. He looks at me and he says, um, that's a very nice jacket. Where'd you get that jacket? That was his first... This is the only thing he could muster. He... He had no idea who I was. Yeah. He started talking about random things that had nothing to do with Zippy. <laughs> I think he might have mentioned the circus at one time because he was looking at the cover and sure. Zippy must be some sort of a clown. Yeah. No one had given him any notes. He had no um, comments to make. At one point, he handed me a, 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 a sketch pad and he said, Well, draw something for us, will you? What? <laughs> So I just did a drawing of Zippy. I said, are we having fun yet? And showed you the camera, and yeah. he laughed. Um, it was a very bizarre, disjointed interview. He had no idea who I was whatsoever. Um, the weird thing was that nobody prepped him. Nobody said, here's some facts, yeah. here's a few questions. Um, very, very loose. Um, I don't know if that... It must have been taped, I guess. I, I don't know how you would ever find it, but... I remember as I left, there was another cartoonist came on. His name was Callahan. I think he wound up working for the New Yorker. Uh huh. So that was their. They were doing cartoonists. Maybe yeah. more than just me that day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I used to do book signings where um, um, one of my book signings, uh, the bookstore owner noticed in my Zippy strip said Zippy's favorite food was ding-dongs and taco sauce. Okay. He said, so he said to me, why don't I go out and get some ding-dongs and a bottle of taco sauce and put it on your table and say anybody who will eat a ding-dong with taco sauce gets a free book. I said, well, okay. You want to clean up afterwards? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. This became a thing for like many, many book signings where I would have yeah. boxes of ding-dongs and taco sauce and people would eat a ding-dong, they douse it with taco sauce and eat it and get a free book. So, go figure. You've, you've made a long career of people not knowing what to do with you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, uh, I don't know. I, I think there's various levels on yeah. which people can get into my stuff, my zippy stuff. Yeah. One of them is just a very surfacey, surreal, goofy level. Sure. And that's okay. I don't mind. 
Um, the way I can tell if somebody really understands what I do, if they say Zippy is surreal, then they don't, they don't get what I'm doing. You know who's surreal? Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is surreal. Mm-hmm. Read Bob Dylan's lyrics sometimes, just as yeah. writing. Yeah, poetry. Disjointed, yeah. great stuff, yeah. but completely surreal. Um, meaning and message, yes, that's in there somewhere, but it's deeply embedded in some pretty bizarre imagery and, mm-hmm. and literary ramblings. Zippy is nowhere near as surreal as that. <laughs> Zippy is actually, um, he himself might be spouting so-called non-sequiturs, but yeah. my intention is not just to um, be ridiculous or absurd, but to make what seems to be ridiculous or absurd make a kind of parallel sense, like a kind of other way of looking at things, that once you get onto that wavelength of it, yeah. you see what I'm doing. If you never get onto that wavelength, then you just might like it as absurdity, as silliness, um, or as randomness. Well, you, But that's not what I'm really doing. Well, but, and, and, and on top of that, you know, the, ultimately I think the, probably the, the most difficult thing about doing that strip is that it not only has to work on both those levels but also has to work on um, th- this this larger narrative that you're talking about but also you know somebody who's just opening up the paper and seeing it for the first time and hasn't been reading it for 20 years yeah. also has to be able to, to appreciate it as a standalone I think the surreality plays more of a role there if you're just seeing it for the first yeah. time and it's just some funny weird right, right. things. Zippy is a um, I forget who said this um, when a, when a, re, a review of, yeah. of Zippy that I um, it was some big city paper that reviewed a Zippy book and they said Zippy is an acquired taste <laughs> that really tells you a lot right there that's, that's fair, that's not unfair I, I used to relish yeah. Zippy suddenly appearing in a big city daily newspaper to people who had never heard of it because the outraged letters would pour into the editor what yeah. is this, how could you foist this um, some people it's called obscene. Yeah. Some are, you're making fun of handicapped people. Yeah. Um, it's uh, hippie garbage. It's this all kinds of negative reaction, and I used to love to um, hear that and to read it because it was, you know, it was validating. You know, it was like yeah. telling me I'm doing something right. Um, that people who are not really meant to get it don't get it. I remember um, I once was talking to Gary Trudeau and. Um, he asked me actually. He said, "He said, so Bill, did you get people writing to you saying your stuff is is stupid, it's yeah. idiotic, it's um, moronic, it's <laughs> dumb, all those words?" And I said, "Yes, that's a very common negative reaction I get." He said, "So do I." He said, "Because he thinks because people, when they see art, they don't get." in the form of a painting in the context of a museum mm. they feel inadequate they, don't, they feel like they don't get Picasso and they feel something is missing, something is lacking in them when they don't get a comic strip they get angry because the comic <laughs> strip should be gettable by yeah. everybody instantly yeah. Garfield should be the model for all comics da-da-da-da-da-da punchline yeah. or not even punchline, just Attitude, you know, Garfield is just attitude. Yeah. Um, or on the highest level, um, peanuts. Yeah, sure. Know. Same, but the same kind of feeling. You yeah. get introduced to something, and there's a fairly lighthearted kind of punchline that happens, and you feel something worked, something clicked. Um, a lot of people read Zippy, that's not how it works. <laughs> it might require that you read it twice. Um, the point of the strip might happen in the second panel, not in the fourth panel. Mm. Um, the references might require that you, of course, these days you can Google, luckily. Sure. Um, it might require that you have, I don't know, some kind of modest education <laughs> to get all the references. Um, but when people don't get a comic, they get angry. And they accuse the cartoonist of being stupid. That's the usual. Yeah. I've talked to many cartoonists about this. The even high and lowest. I mean, Brian Walker gets an occasional <laughs> letter. 
you stupid idiot, you, you should get a real job. You can't do it, you know. Yeah. That's the basic thrust of the kind of, you know, the, um, the people that are never going to be your audience. And it's fun to get that. I hardly ever get that anymore. It's the stupid thing, and then the flips the the not the flip side. I, I, it's like completely adjacent to that are the people who um, assume because they don't get it, it's something obscene. You know, they pr- yeah. sort of project their own right. thoughts onto it exactly. that it must be filthy, it must be dirty, it must be subversive. Right, right, because right. it has to be worthy of their hatred. Yeah. <laughs> um, you, this is this is this is interesting, and you 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 mentioned this a, a little bit before when you were talking about uh, people's reaction and you know the idea that you might be making fun of somebody with a with, with a disability. You know, mm-hmm. he, uh, Zippy is, I guess, mic- microcephalic. Yes, yeah, right. um, or that's his origins. Anyway. Yeah, and, and and I and I'm guessing this is something that you're thinking about lately as you're working on this this Schlitzy book. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Did did that sort of w- w- were you at first that you were dealing with um, well, not only disability but but really like you know he was a sideshow freak right yeah. I mean that's what he did for um, most of his life not at first <laughs> thank God because I would never have done Zippy if I had been um, worried about <laughs> stuff like that yeah. at first my first um, Zippy strip was done as a kind of an assignment by a fellow underground cartoonist in 1970 mm. Uh, Roger Brand, who died a long time ago, he asked me to do a strip for his comic, which was called Real Pulp Comics Number One. And he said, "Why don't you do kind of a Young Lust storyline?" Because mm. I just come out with Young Lust, and it was very popular. Yeah. But make it like a uh, a threesome, and make one of the people in the threesome very weird, and the other two people very normal. Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting editorial. Sure. Line, you know. Yeah. I thought that most underground cartoonist editors didn't say anything. They just said, do, do yeah. whatever you feel like doing. So Roger gave me this kind of An exercise almost. Yeah, interesting yeah. idea. So I was trying to think of who this, I could picture the normal people. That was no problem. Yeah. Who would I get for the weird person? Another fellow underground cartoonist, also gone, Jim Osborne, had a collection of sideshow postcards that hmm. he had bought um, over the years. Most sideshow freaks would sell souvenirs as part of their act. Yeah. So when you left their stage, you would buy something. They all had postcards. Mm. They were just pictures of themselves. It's like, a, it's like a band selling a T-shirt. Exactly. Right. This was before T-shirts were yeah. that easy to make. Um, so he had a stack of you know, 75 sideshow freak postcards. I was looking through them, and they're schlitzy. And I remembered having seen the movie Freaks in art school yeah. in 1963. And I said, okay, here's my weird character. Hmm. So I did a story called I Fell for a Pinhead, But He Made a Fool Out of Me. And that was the beginnings. But never did I think, oh, this is a handicapped person or yeah. mentally disabled. I just thought it was cool. Just yeah. I never thought I'd do anything else with it, too. I thought that would be it. Little did I realize <laughs> that was the turning point in my life. <laughs> Some months after that, I was doing uh, Mr. Toad, was my main character at that time. It's kind of angry amphibian. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, you know, Mr. Toad is really getting to me. I, I don't know if I can keep doing him. Um, I, I need to give him a sidekick, somebody that's very different from him, someone childlike, the opposite of his Interesting. sort of adult rage. Yeah. And, well, that character I did for Real Pulp Comics six months ago. Maybe I could bring that character back. And so I did. And I had done no research into Schlitzy at this point. All I had was that one postcard. I had seen the movie Freaks. Yeah. But seven years ago. And he's, w- you know, there's, I think there's a scene where he mumbles, and that's about... He has one mumble yeah. scene, yes. Um, so I had very little to go on. But once I started doing Zippy, Zippy then, of course, reversed roles with Mr. Toad, and Mr. Toad became Zippy's sidekick, and everybody seemed to be liking what I was doing. I never thought anything about any, you know, politically or otherwise correct problems. But then, probably 
within a year or so, I was doing a radio show in Santa Cruz, California, and it was a call-in show. And so I got a phone call from a local uh, mental health center. As somebody who lived in Santa Cruz for four years, this is not surprising that that's where that came from. Okay. (laughs) And I girded myself. I thought, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah. This thing I haven't really been paying much attention to is now going to bite me in the butt. Yeah. And someone's going to tell me that I'm making fun of handicapped people. But instead, this woman who called in said that her um, people that she works with, many of whom were microcephalic, she had brought some comics in of mine because she thought Zippy was a kind of happy huh. microcephalic. Yeah. And he might be kind of a role model or yeah. might they might react nicely. And they loved Zippy and they were all drawing Zippy. They understood that they that's... They got something out of it, yes. Yeah. They saw something. They saw who themselves. Knows? Yeah, who knows? I mean, yeah. I didn't actually ever go down to this place. To, that was a little bit too scary. Sure. Um, and then over the years, I have to say, only a handful of people have ever said anything to me. I did get one letter, probably in the mid-'70s, from a mother who said it was not something to make fun of, that her son... Um, had this condition and that it had been very difficult for the family and the few times that that happened I would if it was on a radio show or if it was through letters I would write back and not really apologize but I would say just how sorry I was to hear that Mm. I had in any way caused any pain just be upfront about it Uh, my intention was not to do that and I'm very sorry if that happened and that usually just ended it right there. Um, never went any further. Um, so, you know, to me, Zippy was <laughs> mentally handicapped when I first started doing him, but not anymore. Well, he's a—he's sort he's of a cipher, and, and that's—I yeah. mean, you said childlike, and, that, and I think that's why it it works because he's just—he's something that Zippy, everything can filter Zippy, through. Zippy, right? Zippy, does, Zippy doesn't have a filter. Yeah. And and Zippy, um, he says exactly what he's thinking, yeah. which can be very disarming. I mean, we've all experienced um, a four or five year old um, saying to, to an adult, um, you know, you have funny teeth, yeah. or something. You're just not supposed to say yeah. what you're thinking. Yeah, we have we all have these little little um, uh, societal pre- preventive norms and, yeah. devices in yeah. our heads that tell us, no, you can't say yeah. that. You can think that, but you can't say it, or certainly not now. You can say it in some other context yeah. later. And that that little um, voice is not there for Zippy. He doesn't have that voice. What what What's bringing you back to, let's see, what's bringing you back to the source material? Um, well, I have to say it has, it has a similar um, pathway that my um, Invisible Ink yeah. book had, which was when I started to think about my mother's long affair with this uh, man um, who was pretty much forgotten today, Lawrence Larrier. When I Googled him, <laughs> reams of material spilled out. <laughs> when you Google Schlitzie, yeah. reams of material spills out. Um, some of it contradictory, yeah. some of it dubious. I have yet to be able to pinpoint his birth parents. I know his birth year and his birth place. Mm-hmm. I actually h- hired a genealogist. Oh, wow. Um, and they, they couldn't, with any certainty, find his parents. He was born in the Bronx in 1901. He is um, of German-Jewish extraction. Schlitzi huh. is the last name of one of his handlers. It's not his name. He was sold, in effect, to the circus sideshows in 1908. But there's no record of who his parents were, um, exactly how that worked. Of course, the way it worked was the way it worked. You know, uh, a sideshow hustler would walk around looking for strangely deformed people and approach either them or their caretakers or parents and offer them what amounted to a decent job. It, the, the hardest part, I've got to imagine, is, is doing this in a way... I mean, you know, 
uh, our interest in subject matter like that is, in a sense, kind of exploitative. I mean, obviously, like just the freak shows are exploitative. So how do you handle that without it being its own freak well, show? I'm, I, right. Um, well, okay. Here's an example. Um, I tracked down a man who is a little younger than me, but he's about 65, who worked with Schlitzie in 1965 in Toronto. That's toward the end of Schlitzie's career, and mm-hmm. Schlitzie died in 1971 in Los Angeles. That's a pretty good run for somebody with Microsoft. 70 years old. Yeah. Yeah, it's very unusual, which proves, it shows that his microcephaly wasn't that severe. Yeah. Because the more severe, the shorter the attention. Shorter lifespan, lifespan yeah. yes. Okay, so I met this man. I heard about him. And then I, he turned out to live in Springfield, Massachusetts, about an hour and a half from me. And so we made, I made an appointment, and I went and talked to him. And I said, so what was Schlitzie like as a human being? I know what he was like as a performer. Mm-hmm. I know his sideshow history. And he gave me such tremendous insight into Schlitzie as a person. Hmm. Yes, a handicapped guy with the mind of kind of a four-year-old, but with um, likes, dislikes, interests, um, personal little tics, little catchphrases. I said, you know, in the Freaks movie, he mumbles. You can't understand. I said, was that how he presented himself? Oh, no. He said he doesn't quite know why Schlitzie mumbles in, sh- in that movie. Yeah. He spoke, sometimes he mumbled, but more often he spoke coherently. It's really, it's a weird thing, because I, I, I w- I'd watched it, because I knew I was going to speak to you today, and I knew that um, you yeah, were working just, on this. But it's, it's, a, it's such a strange thing, because the other actor is speaking to him and is acting as though he understands what he's saying. And, and maybe he did. I mean, in that scene, Schlitzie is basically reacting to being complimented. Yeah. Oh, that's a pretty dress... Of course, Schlitzie, by the way, who was always billed as a female, was a male. Yeah, uh, wearing a muumu. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, with five o'clock shadow, <laughs> very obviously a man. Yeah. Um, and in that scene, he's being complimented as if he's, um, you know, a woman that's wearing a pretty new dress. Isn't that a pretty dress? And so Schlitzie is just saying, "Oh, he's not really saying anything, but he's acting like, oh, gee, really? Oh. Yeah. So there's no real need for Schlitzie to speak, so he didn't, I guess. <laughs> but this guy, who at the age of 18 worked in a uh, Toronto circus sideshow that traveled around Canada, spent an entire summer with the sideshow people, mm-hmm. specifically with Schlitzie, who was in the room next to him wherever they went. They stayed in boarding houses. And Schlitzie and Schlitzie's caretaker, who was a sword swallower <laughs> um, named uh, Frenchie, Frenchie took care of Schlitzie. And my contact, this guy, Wolf Krakowski, great name, Wolf Krakowski hung out with them. So I got this incredible insight into who Schlitzie was. I said, so when Schlitzie performed, what did he do? He said he didn't really do anything. Yeah. The, The guy would introduce him on stage, give this crazy description. The last of the Aztecs. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was yeah. found in the Peruvian jungle. Half <laughs> monkey, half man. And there's this kind of 63-year-old guy looking kind of bemused <laughs> with the mumu and doesn't make any sense. <laughs> he said Schlissi was occasionally handed a ukulele. He like he didn't really play, but he just held it. Yeah. Um, he, did, he did a card trick which consisted of um, take a card, any card, to the audience and then he would guess the card. Of course, the cards were all that card. The yeah. entire deck yeah. was all the six of spades. So he, that was his one trick. Um, then I said, okay, that's interesting. But were any members of the audience rowdy towards him? Did they yeah. torture him? Did They They must have, because that's what sideshows are all about, is look at the freak. He's not like you. He's your normal human being. Here is a torches and pitchforks and... Exactly. This is some kind of hellish (laughs) non-human. He said the common thing was, the worst thing was um, teenage boys would start tormenting him verbally and then start throwing things at him and it would graduate fairly often to throwing lit cigarettes at him. Mm. So that was very interesting. 
I said, well, what happened when a lit cigarette hit Schlitzie? He said, well, first he just sort of recoiled like anybody. But if it kept up, he would go to the edge of the stage. He's on a stage, yeah. four feet up, and the kids would be right there. And he'd go up to them, and he'd lean over the stage in a, um, uh, an animal rage would come over his face. He didn't do anything except stare. But he would stare at them, and this is like the original meaning of freaking somebody out. You know, <laughs> he would freak them out. Yeah, they would give up and take off. He said this was his his defense. He would come to the stage, stare at them intently, communicating this animal something or other. No, no words came out of his mouth, and it would just disarm them completely. Because he was probably only about four feet tall, right? He was pretty he was small. Four foot three. Yeah. yeah. The other thing he'd do is he would, if there were middle-aged women in the front rows that he could see, he would walk towards them while the barker is spieling, and he would start talking to them. And he would say things like, I had a good day today. Did you have a good day today? I did the dishes today. I love to do the dishes. Do you do the dishes? So I got all this dialogue yeah. from this guy. Um, so I'm given all this stuff, and I also talked to his... Manager who's still alive. He's 86 years old. Wow. His last manager, this guy named Ward Hall, lives in uh, Florida. He gave me all kinds of great insights into Schlitzie's daily reality, what he was like, that he liked music. He listened to the Beatles. He swayed back and forth when he, when he heard music. He had a catchphrase. He would say, to no one in particular, he would say, You see? You see? You see? You know, it's a good catchphrase. Great catchphrase, you see? <laughs> um, so, you know, I got so much good stuff out of yeah. these two people. I don't think there are any more people that I'm going to get, yeah. <laughs> but I'm looking. So I really feel like I'm, uh, I'm trying to make him be as human as possible. Yeah. Um, he, um, he had specific foods he liked. He had specific music he liked. Um, he could um, play simple games with people. Um, he was very physically affectionate to the point where it could be something you'd have to <laughs> remove yourself from. Yeah. Um, I once met half a dozen microcephalics in a foolish attempt at research <laughs> in Oakland at a mental hospital. I knew a nurse there. This was during Zippy? During Zippy. This was about 1970. Oh, so this is prior to Zippy becoming a well, so I guess seventy-five. But prior to it becoming a news newspaper. Yeah, this is yeah. underground Zippy. Yeah, and I thought I would I'd bring a tape recorder and a camera, and I would get a chance to talk to. She said we have a whole bunch of microcephalics here. Yeah, they used to all be sterilized and um, to remove their sex urge because they tend to be very sexually expressive. Yeah, um, but we don't do that anymore. That's what, that's in the past. We let them just be who they are yeah. so be prepared they might be a little affectionate when they see you because they <laughs> like strangers so I was put into a room with my tape recorder and my camera and suddenly I had six pinheads groping me like humping my leg uh, it was so intense my <laughs> tape recorder dropped on the floor I, I basically just ran I ran from the scene it was so intense so I asked this guy uh, both Ward Hall and the other guy yeah. about that aspect and they said oh yeah um, Schlitzie loved to cuddle <laughs> this is a 60 something year old man uh, in a muumuu with a diaper and um, if he started to cuddle with you you had to kind of be, be careful Yeah, you might get a little too into it <laughs> what was uh, what was the research process like for Invisible Ink in terms of um, you know, obviously, go, going home and uh, were you interviewing members of your family for the story? Primarily, my uncle. Yeah. Um, uh, because he's the only one alive at mm. this point. My uncle's ninety-one years old, <clears throat> and he has a completely um, razor-sharp memory. Mm. Um, I depended largely on online searches and on. Early on in the process, discovering that Lawrence Larrier's papers 
were all left to Syracuse University Library. So I went up there and spent four days going through everything they had. They had a huge amount of material, original art, um, some correspondence. He wrote radio plays, he wrote TV plays, 16 crime novels, um, caricatures of self-caricatures, um, one photograph of him with a big red lipstick kiss on it, which I decided was probably my mother, <laughs> my mother's <laughs> lips. Uh, and, I mean, I did not interview his family. I, yeah. was, I was that kept myself separate from that. They have yet to contact me. I imagine they will eventually. There's two, two children. But you, but you sort of had to, to, in order to tell the story, you kind of had to wait for the main players to be gone. Well, that's... They were gone. Yeah. Um, you know, my mother died in 1998, and Larry died in 1981. Um, all the principals in the book yeah. are gone except for my uncle. Because it's a very personal story. Yes, and I could not have told it before for all kinds of reasons, including libel and slander, yeah. which I do not do in the book. But um, if you deal with the private lives of living people, yeah. you can run that risk. If you deal with the private lives of dead people, there is no such thing as libel or slander. It doesn't exist. When, when you were uh, um, you know, thinking sort of casually about doing a, a, a longer form piece, a you know, graphic novel or whatever you call it, would, um, were you expecting it to be something so personal? No, it started out as a... Um, kind of the way Gary Groth describes it on the f front flap of the book yeah. as trying to solve a mystery. Mm. Mm. What got me about the subject was what I didn't know about it, not what I did know. Yeah. I thought, okay, I've just revived this little factoid in my brain that my mother had this long affair that she confessed to me briefly and then never spoke about it again. What was that all about? Yeah. Who was he? I knew that he was a cartoonist. I, huh. His books were in our house. I, I only <laughs> met him once. Um, I had no idea they were having an affair. Of course, I was you know, 12, 13, 14 years old. I just thought my mom is a secretary to this kind of cool guy that does comics and writes crime novels and um, kind of sexy stuff, too. And, you know, I, so... I, it was it was like working on on a um, mystery that was getting more and more personal the more I started uncovering it, and then I, I slowly began to realize what an effect this man had on my life. Yeah. Confirmed completely by my mother's diaries, in which she says very plainly. Um, a very telling sentence. She says, everything I have ever done that is any good about my children comes from Lawrence Larrier. Hmm. So, so the, the, you know, the, 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 the connection is pretty clear. I mean, you know, you in some ways followed in his footsteps. <laughs> you, yeah. you became a cartoonist. I mean, at some point, right. this, it, this clicks in your head that, like, he yeah. had a profound influence on me, even I, I, though I didn't really know I, him. I, I took a long, circuitous route to yeah. get there because my interest in comics was typical of you know, a 10-year-old sure. boy. I loved Mad Magazine and Uncle Scrooge and Little Lulu. And, um, as I got older, um, even though Larry's work began to come into the house, I started to drift away from comics. And I started to get into fine art, which yeah. was also because of him. <laughs> See, my mother was a very smart, very um, literate, sophisticated woman. My father was likewise. But they had almost no interest in art, of any, any graphic art of any kind. Yeah. We had classical music was being played all the time in my house. There were um, lots of great novels. Lots of, my mother was very interested in Greek mythology. Hmm. Um, my father was very interested in Charles Dickens. I remember reading Charles Dickens because of him. But no art books. Yeah. I was very interested in art from a very early age. 
all of a sudden, Picasso made his appearance in my house. And that was Lawrence Larrier showing he would go to museums with my mother. They, they didn't just have a sexual liaison. They had a deep friendship. She, there's only one photograph that my mother has of him yeah. in her papers that I, when she died. And on the, it's a picture of Larrier, and on the back of it it says, My teacher. My teacher. Um, okay, there is, you know, there's an element of, like, the great man telling the yeah. young, younger woman, sure. um, uh, let me show you the world. <laughs> and that is there somewhere. Yeah. My wife, Diane, cringes when she sees that, my teacher. <laughs> I don't. I think she just, that's really what was happening. She valued him as, as a teacher. Um, and he showed her, he showed her the art world. He, he took her to the Museum of Modern Art. All of a sudden, my mother was into abstract painting. When, and when, then I was into abstract painting when, when as a say, result. When you say it's in made appearances, what is what, it, it, it? Just in, in in art books, in, in prints, in, in yeah, mostly books, coffee table yeah. books. For all for all I know, books that he loaned her. Yeah. My mother, my family didn't have much money. Um, big Picasso books were, you know, twenty five bucks. That was a lot of money. I, for all I know, he loaned them to her. I don't know. Um, and yes, then um, prints would go on, on the wall. Yeah. Um, and I was also influenced by my next door neighbor, Ed Emschwiller, who was a highly successful uh, science fiction illustrator, who also introduced me to some art books as well, some artists that weren't um, you know, sci-fi illustrators. But mostly it came through my mother. And whatever she brought to the house in, in that area, that, the art world area, was through him. That's where she got it. Was he, was he ever made aware of your path? Yes. Um, he, during their affair, probably when I was in art school, probably in the mid-60s, he suggested that maybe um, it might be a good idea if, if he were to mentor me. <laughs> Turns out, one of the things I discovered about Larrier was in his spare time, which I can't imagine he had any of, he would mentor neighborhood children in the town where he lived, Freeport, sp specifically um, black kids. <laughs> The town was gradually turning black. Yeah. White flight was happening. Mm -hmm. um, he would, I don't know how this happened, but he would offer himself as a mentor to kids that, I don't know what, what he, how he came in contact with them. On the street, I have no idea. Um, several of them went on to talk about this in various formats, um, Facebook and other places where I've read. So, and he had a, how to Draw Cartoon Correspondence Course. He had written three How to Draw car Comic Books, you know, instructional books. That was a big part of who he was. So this suggestion did not sit well with me. Sure, sure. She said, um, Larry, uh, that's a little too dangerous. Yeah. And, and he kind of gave up. But then when he, when he started to see my very early underground stuff, he suggested it again. And she then passed that on to me. Just maybe two years before their relationship ended, she asked me if I would like her to show him my work. And I said, no. I thought he would hate it. Because he was such a, you know, yeah. normal, traditional, traditional mainstream yeah. cartoonist. I'm doing all this weird stuff. He would take one look at it, and yeah. he wouldn't know what to make of it, or he would hate it. So I said, no, please don't show it to him. So that was, that was the extent of any awareness or involvement. Um, it's possible that he did see my work. I would think he would be interested. You could have, in New York, in the early 70s, if you walked into the right... Yeah, head shop. Head shop. <laughs> no, not even that. Times Square... That's where I saw my first underground comics in a Times Square magazine store. Huh. That's where I first saw the first Zap. 
in a, uh, not a head shop, not a comic shop, but a couple of years there, it was, they didn't yeah. quite know what to do with underground comics, so you, they would pop up. My father first saw my work in Penn Station in a magazine rack <laughs> and wrote to me how proud he was. Of course, he never read it. I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> uh, the pride might have disappeared quickly, but yeah. he was proud in the sense that, wow, you... Whatever you did, it got into a magazine sure. rack and Penn Station. That's quite an accomplishment. So there was a few years. So Larry could have easily have seen my work, but no, no way to know what he thought. Uh, I can't imagine he would really relate to it. I, of course, in my Invisible Ink book, I make a whole there's a whole section where I imagine. Yeah. Had he been my um, stepfather, had my mother divorced my father. Had I then been thoroughly mentored by him, what would my career have been like? Would I have, instead of coming, uh, going into underground, mm -hmm. personal, weird comics, would I have stayed in New York, where there was still a thriving uh, gag cartoon industry and magazines, and, and would I have just um, done that? And my ambition had just stayed mainstream like that. You could have made Garfield. I could have been Garfield. Yeah, well, thank God. <laughs> thank God that never happened. Well, you'd be a lot richer. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. There you go. That was Bill Griffith. Thanks so much, Tim, for taking the time to do that. Uh, really, really great conversation. In fact, we... Um, we, I think we kind of, it was my, uh, did it at uh, Comic Arts uh, Brooklyn, a wonderful show out uh, here in New York. Um, and I, we lost track of time to the point that uh, the, the, it was my last interview of the day and, and the show was actually shutting down around us. Um, you know, we were sitting up there and it went on for, uh, I think, uh, well beyond uh, an hour at that point and people were closing up shop. We didn't realize it. And, you know, by the time we were finished talking, we walked downstairs and, and the show wasn't going on anymore. Um, thank you so much to him for taking the time to do that. It's been it's been a number of years since I, I was last able to speak with him. Um, did a, an interview with him for my old website, The Daily Crosshatch, and at the time asked him, uh, you know, I, whether or not he was going to be working on a, on a full-length graphic novel. Obviously, he's been doing uh, doing Zippy the Pinhead for about as long as anyone can remember, and um, you know, we're really, I think. Everybody who's a fan of his work was was eagerly anticipating, uh, you know, a real lengthy piece for him. It's out now. He was at the show promoting it. Uh, Invisible Ink came out last year. Really, uh, really phenomenal autobiographical or uh, memoir. I guess you would call it a memoir. It's uh, it's a, about uh, about his his mother's kind of. Uh, Secret, uh, secret life and, and secret affair with a, a cartoonist, and going, going back and tracing that story. Uh, really terrific. Um, thanks again to him. Thanks to uh, Gabe at Comic Arts Brooklyn for uh, setting aside an area for us to speak. Uh, thanks, of course, to Jack at Fanographics for setting that up. Uh, thanks to Brian, as always, for writing the show together. Thanks to everybody at the Boing Boing Podcast Network. If you like this show, many other fine shows you can check out over at boingboing.net. Uh, you can also check them over. You can check them out over at iTunes. And while you're over at iTunes, you should take the opportunity to rate the show if you if you liked what you heard. Uh, thanks everybody who's rated it recently. Could really uh, you know could could always use some more. Uh, 150 episodes. Amazingly, this is uh, this is number 150 right here. Um, really really enjoy doing the show. You know it's been very. Uh, been a, been a very very unique outlet for me. Um, I was you know, I was talking to somebody about this recently. Uh, actually, I was talking to uh, to uh, D Dan Friel, a uh, musician who will have on a, an upcoming episode. I, I uh, interned with him many years ago at the Onion, and he was asking me um, why I started it. And you know, uh, basically at the time, the thought was, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of podcasts. Um, been doing them for many, many different outlets, and you know, and the ones that I done on my own, I always needed some sort of kind of uh, weird theme to attempt to set myself apart from from everybody else. But what ended up happening here is I've been doing uh, you know a lot of interviews with with cartoonists and and, and musicians and writers and artists over the years, and um, mostly for for print outlets, and it's always a little. Uh, I don't think heartbreaking is the right word. You know, obviously good editorial is very important, but it's kind of a bummer when you sit down with somebody and have a really 
interesting long conversation with them and then it just gets chopped up into pieces you know especially knowing that uh a lot of times with a lot of people they don't really start to open up until you know at least like 15 minutes or so into the conversation so so the thought process was you know what if we could uh kind of just take that format and and release it into the world and it's in its purest form you know get rid of the preamble and, and just stick a you know relatively uh, unedited interview out there and, and, you know, just sort of try to, to just sort of try to kind of get the vibe as, as, as Mark from, um, boing boing, I think he used to call them uh, cafe conversations. So just kind of two people sitting down and talking. So if you liked what you heard, please uh, rate us over, over at iTunes. You know, we can, we can certainly use it. It, it helps us. I'm out there right now, uh, trying to set up a bunch, bunch more interviews for future episodes. And it, it certainly, uh, helps us a lot when, when, you know, I send out the link and people go over to, to iTunes and see all the stars. Uh, so thanks everyone to everyone who's rated the show. Um, you know, check us out over at iTunes, check us out over at uh, Tumblr. It's our whalecast tumblr.com that is the first and best place to get all of your riyl related information uh what else uh, the email address it's riylcast at uh, gmail.com if you got any feedback or anything else along those lines uh like us on facebook and i think that's about all i got so thanks everybody uh thank you so much for supporting us through these uh these 100 and and 50 episodes uh, got uh, another one 151 is coming up uh, just about this time next week so stick around 